Welcome to Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Brenda Elsie, and this week I get to do the interview. And I have with me Evan Whitfield, who has been working on the issues of equity in soccer for quite a while now. And he recently has joined the Chicago Fire as vice president of equity. He is a founding member of SCORE. He is a former player. We're going to get into all of that. Evan, welcome. I am so excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I am really excited to be on your show. I've been a big fan of the pod uh, for a while now, and I love the I love the episodes. I love the perspective. So thank you so much. So let's just start with your own, a little bit about your own biography in soccer. Sometimes we call it football on the show. <laughs> we go back and forth. Yeah, I, I, I go back and forth. Yeah. We're the Chicago Fire Football Club, yes. so I, I, yes. I feel um, like I should call it football. But it just depends on the audience, right? So I'll probably be saying soccer. It just seems more natural to totally me. Totally fine. Yeah, no, I've played – I did play soccer uh, in the U.S. and, you know, in all the levels, you know, youth like everyone else. High school and club and ODP and collegiately um, at Duke. And then uh, eventually uh, made it to the pros, played for the Chicago Fire um, for a majority of my career, 99 to uh, 04. Uh, prior to that, I, I played a little over half a season with Ghent in Belgium. And then I finished my career uh, unceremoniously in Salt Lake City for RSL. Um, you know, a few things of, of note that I'm really proud of, you know, my participation in the, the 2000 Olympics and also uh, the 99 Pan Am Games. But um, from the advocacy and equity uh, side of things, I was one of the original members of the MLS Players Union, the MLSPA today, and uh, was on the executive board when we negotiated the first collective bargaining agreement in 2003. And you're also a lawyer, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, so you're good at bargaining. Yeah, yeah, that's my, uh, I guess that's my uh, my learned skill. So yeah, after I stopped playing, I um, went to law school uh, here in Chicago at DePaul and went on to have a 14, 15-year-ish uh, career as a divorce litigator, which was something interesting that I don't want to get too much into because I'll have like a PTSD episode. <laughs> oh, man. So, but you started over last years getting, again, like revisiting some of the issues of equity and Black Lives Matter. Um, did you always, when you were growing up, was it very apparent to you that there was deep-seated racism in soccer? Yeah, you know, it's, I was particularly lucky. I mean, I'm, I'm from Glendale, Arizona, Maricopa County, Phoenix, Arizona. It's a pretty interesting place. Politically, it's been that way forever. But my my soccer experience was very um, unique in that my very first coach when I was an AYSO was South African. And he was, you know, at the time what they call a colored man who had left uh, South Africa and moved to Phoenix of all places. And uh, he was mixed like I am. So I'm biracial also. So it was really neat to uh, to finally have met someone like you, right, that is doing the thing that you like to do. So, you know, learning at, you know, five or six year old, where, what is South Africa? What is apartheid? What is going on? Mm. Like all those things uh, were conversations that we had. Mm. And um, 
kind of bringing in the topic of our our current Supreme Court, um, even, you know, the Loving case from, I think it was 71 or something, um, you know, by parents uh, having met prior to that, Mm. right? Something that we always Mm -hmm. kind of discussed, right? So, you know, why are there no Black people in Arizona? (laughs) Why are there? Why is there such a large, you know, like Latino, Mexican American population in in Phoenix, but then we don't see them, right? Mm-hmm. So those questions just kind of came up naturally. And it's kind of interesting because today, when we work together on a report about the state of representation of Latinx and African American players, um, one thing that's really striking is even though there's this idea of the quote unquote soccer mom or soccer family in the United States, which is coded as very white, um, the players themselves for the national team for MLS for NWSL is an incredibly diverse sport racially. Yeah. Was it always that way? Did you remember it always being that way? No, I mean, I think that. Um, you know, again, just growing up, there was other, one other black person on my teams growing up. He was our our, our uh, superficially, very noticeably black person on our team. And of course, everyone in the, sta- in the, in the sidelines, and again, this is like 80s and 90s. So it's, the parents were, I don't know, I don't know if they're more or less well behaved, but Anyway, there was always a lot of interactions and people always assumed that uh, my dad was was John's dad. Oh, okay. There was a lot of like accidentally heard purposefully intentionally racist language, right? So the lack of black people was around, right? And my dad, you know, comes from a family of 13 kids and uh, being uh, black dairy farmers uh, back in the 40s was very unique. So yeah. Back then, and if you watch the national teams, like right, 1990 World Cup, that team was pretty white, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, th- I think my high schools, my club teams were all, you know, very, very uh, white. So, yeah, it was something that I think was always obvious in American sport. It's not until you, you know, go to other countries, right? So I was lucky enough to travel to South America uh, starting at 10 years old. Mm-hmm. And there's when you really see the difference, right? You see all of the the players being of, you know, different hues and darker complected. And then you see, you know, the things that you and I like to talk about, the all the managers and coaches and, and whatnot, agents all being uh, white, right? And that, that was a big thing. Mm-hmm. You know, my my club coach, Louis Dabo, who passed away this last year, was from Guinea-Bissau. And he played uh, for Benfica in the 60s. And he was a very, very dark-complected man. Um, and again, he was very outspoken about that. Um, mm. I think America is unique in that we have... I don't know, whitewash the sport, so to speak, mm-hmm. right? But now with the, the professional game growing and growing and growing on the men's and women's side, we're seeing contrast that you're talking about, right? With the players being more of color. And it's exciting because it also indicates the internationalization of the sport in the U.S., right? I mean, the dominance of, of Brazil forever and ever means that, like, it's always been a sport where the very idea of excellence is not necessarily associated with whiteness, right? But in fact, like Pelé, like 1958. Right. Exactly. So yeah. it's, it's an exciting time. And so on, on that note, I want to ask you, so you, you decided to stop being in your law profession yes, where you work and you've made this pretty big move. And I think there's been, 
you know, a lot of calls for uh, your type of position, a type of position that, you know, addresses head on issues of equity. So I wonder if you could just explain to listeners like why you did that, what it is, you know, the kind of concreteness of it. Yeah, I mean, it was, it almost sounds like trite now, right? Like the pandemic occurred and I was not billing a zillion hours a week and the courts were closed and I had dinner with my family for the first time in however many years. And (laughs) (laughs) that was awful things, right? Like, so that, that space, right. That I was afforded um, by the pandemic was really a catalyst uh, just for wanting to do really, I mean, missing the, the sports uh, that I had been playing for so long. Mm -hmm. And then of course, you know, George Floyd in the summer of 2020. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, in Chicago, you know, Chicago is a very racially charged city. And we had uh, McDonald, I think, in 2016. And I mean, there's so many lethal policing incidences. And, uh, you know, there was that, uh, you know, our current mayor, Lightfoot, prior to her her stint as mayor, was the, the head of like the uh, investigation into the rampant systemic racism within the CPD. So... That space created by the pandemic, my background uh, and skill set as a, as a litigator and professional advocate, and then reaching out to people during the pandemic via Zoom, right, which is like this weird phenomenon, mm-hmm. and getting back in touch with, you know, Eddie Pope, Kobe Jones, DeMarcus Beasley, you know, Danielle Slayton, Kim Crabb, Tony Sana, right, all these uh, old colleagues and some new friends that I had known about but never met, right, and we were very much inspired uh, by, you know, Black Players for Change like, that got on it very quickly, right? I'm very inspired by their action. But, you know, we're sitting there on these Zooms, Ali Curtis, right? All these very, very prominent Black soccer players who had the most amazing careers, right? Represented the country, scored the first goals in the, in the MLS Cup finals, you know, like vanguard pioneer status people with amazing re- resumes, Oguchi uh, and Yewu, right? And none of us involved at equivalently high levels that you would expect from our backgrounds, right? And like, you know, you hear people say, you know, uh, past performance is an indicator for future performance, right? And if that's true, all of these champions that I was seeing again, um, why aren't they? Why aren't they excelling in in the ways that they want to excel? Mm-hmm. Right? They've all done quite well, but not mm-hmm. in the space they want to do. Right? Mm-hmm. Those things, and and you know, coming together with Score Soccer Collective on racial equity, which was, you know, this uh, loose confederation of us individuals who who came together and supported Black Players for Change, and and directly interfaced with uh, Don Garber, Commissioner Garber of Major League Soccer. And, you know, we wrote a demand letter and and demanded increased representation for black and brown people and women in the sport, which at the time had never had a black executive in its 26-year history, Um, shockingly, um, or not, depending on how cynical you are. (laughs) Um, But, you know, being part of that and getting the response from the league and the commissioner and ha- helping and uh, instigate the, the hiring of MLS's first black executive, uh, Shola Winley, uh, to the uh, you know diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, position there on the executive team, it was really rewarding, right? And then, of course, meeting people like yourself, Piara Pawar at Fair Network, different people at Common Goal. And, like, it was 
exactly like I, what I did as a divorce lawyer, which was advoc- you know, advocating for an individual, but like, you know, being part of a community and working towards, you know, fairness and equity in, in the space that I love was just super desirable. And I couldn't find a reason to go back to my prior existence, right? Regardless of the, you know, status or financial, you know, differences in it. And uh, was lucky enough to, uh, through my, you know, work with you and, and, and Common Goal, kind of reconnect really with the soccer world in this space and, and be a person who, who was sought after in that. And then that, that, that led me to the Chicago Fire role. And so what is your position right now at the Chicago Fire? Can you explain it? Yeah, so I'm the Vice President of Equity, Alumni Relations, and Engagement, which is uh, three very, very different things. You know, the Alumni Relations is straightforward. The FIRE, we have amazing alumni, Stoichkoff, uh, Schweinsteiger, Jesse Marsh, the coach of Leeds, Chris Armas was at Manchester United. Um, the, we have a very, very long list of, of really amazing alumni, and we were just doing a really uh, bad job of keeping in touch with them. So I know a lot of those guys. I played with a lot of them. Um, so I've just created a, an alumni network, right? And we're just building that out. And it's our it's our 25th uh, anniversary season. So Ooh. we're having a big party on October 8th and flying everybody in. So I'm like spearheading the logistics for all of that. Yeah, so that's cool. Uh, and then the engagement piece is, um, and this is you know something that we can get into technically that's important. Like, you know, where should DEI sit in your organizational chart? Yeah. I sit underneath the SVP of community relations, Paul Cadwell, who's an outstanding uh, person, a real ally and advocate. Um, so I'm lucky to be there. Um, but I work with him very closely and uh, the director of our foundation, Jessica Yavitz, in community engagement and civic engagement around our like infrastructure projects. We're trying to build a performance center for the first team. And then we do a ton of you know field building and things like that. But the, I think the, the different, I'll just plug Chicago Fire a little bit, brag on them. Yeah. The one thing that is a little, little bit different is that we do provide a, an intense amount of programming, right? And I think that so many people want to do an infrastructure project because it's tangible and it's sexy and they can put their brand on mm-hmm. it. But I won't say it's useless, but it doesn't reach its maximum potential. There's no programming on it. And by programming, you mean what? We have a, this thing called the Plays uh, program, which is a social emotional learning uh, through football, right? So this is coaching uh, CPS, college school teachers about how to be a coach, because they maybe not know a lot about soccer, but relying on their professional teaching skills, which is a thing. Um, and also, uh, well, a lot of, I'm married to a teacher, so a lot of people I think have underappreciation for teachers, so I just have to say that, sorry. Agree. Strong agree <laughs> as a teacher. And um, using, you know, their connections with the children in those areas, right? And, you know, CPS has a has a residency requirement for their teachers. So, you know, it's not us just coming in here and, you know, playing the savior. We're trying to amplify right. the people who are already doing work in the communities and then just adding and mm-hmm. supplementing to their programming. So and we're in, I think we're about 50 schools, 50 Chicago public schools. We also uh, currently just this month as part of our outreach to the, um, the near West side Abla homes where we're, we're, we're attempting to lease this land to build our performance center. We provided three weeks of free uh, soccer camp for children there. And we also employed as counselors, you know, local uh, youth. And that's a heavily Latinx 
area. No, I mean, I lived on Western and Fullerton. So I'm trying to think if you think of that as near West or do so you mean? So I'm very specifically, I'm talking about Roosevelt, between Roosevelt and 15th Avenue and then uh, Loomis mm. and Ashland. So just, just east of that is all Latino. I would a hundred percent Latinx, but yeah. just west of that, like west of Loomis is all black. Yeah. Oh, so that's a really important area to be in space to occupy. hundred percent, hundred percent. It's, you know, and it's a, it's a traditional demographic Latinx that, you know, everyone acknowledges is into soccer, right? Mm-hmm. But I would say is is underserved still. And mm-hmm. then this black community, uh, which I think people wrongly think of as a monolith, right? And say, oh, black people don't play soccer. Right. But that's not true. We all, like we just said earlier, tons of black people play soccer in and around America. And there's a ton of Afro-Latinx people. I mean, African, Afro-Latinx. Like, huge Puerto yes. Rican yes. community over there, you know, huge diasporic populations. Yeah, that's that's an exciting place to be, though. I can see how that would be, like, people would really love that idea of giving these kids, you know, structured. Yeah, no, for sure. And and I guess now I'm getting to the what I do is because you asked me the question, what do I do? Um, you know, it's 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 a brand new role. I think that only one other MLS team has a position like mine that's dedicated to this. And I think it's uh, St. Louis, which isn't even playing yet. But I would say that like representation matters, right? Like they are a uh, majority woman led uh, organization, right? So I feel like it, it only makes sense that they're the other group that uh, uh, has created this space or thinks it's uh, relevant or important. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so what do I do? I am the owner of everything DEI for Chicago Fire. Okay. That is from the first team staff and players all the way down to our academy, um, our front office employees, also like the strategic mission and vision and the operationalization of those things as far as DEI is concerned. Why do you think DEI is important? You know, why do we need these positions? I mean, the easy, the easy answer is like, it's the right thing to do. And that's, that's a really good answer. Um, I also think that, you know, representation matters and I'm a real big believer in, like, I don't believe in, um, like innateness, right? So (laughs) it's about practice, right? You're good at soccer because you practice. You're a good college professor because you practice, right? You may have like a predisposition for it or something like that, but you get better as you intentionally practice over time. And DEI is so important because our organizations, whether they be in sport or elsewhere in the United States, are overwhelmingly white and male, but it's a fact, right? And those people are not practiced in thinking about anyone other than themselves. And uh, DEI is important because there is a person, preferably at a high level within the organization, who is making space either through lived experiences or or bringing in other people uh, of color and different genders and different backgrounds and you know all of those rich uh, diversity that uh, that we have uh, in the human experience and uh, giving them uh, space to be seen and also to be heard and then also to influence the decisions that are made on a strategic level because again soccer is a business 
It's a massive business and Major League Soccer, you know, wants to continue to grow and be a, you know, quote unquote, major league, which we are, but a, a global major league. And, you know, that comes through eyes on screens, revenue, TV deals, right? And all of that has to do with, you know, connecting to our, our consumer base, which is heavily, heavily non-white, right? And then also, um, like you brought up in the beginning, connecting to the players, of Major League Soccer is not white, right? So um, coaches, trainers, psychological performance uh, people who work, like it's important to have people who can authentically connect uh, with with the athletes um, to help maximize their performance, right? So um, it's morally right. It's right for the performance of the organization. And it should be the legally you know, correct thing to do by compulsion, right? Uh, not so much in the United States, I guess, but we are equal opportunity. But, um, you know, we don't have anything like they do in Europe with like mandating of of additional women to boards and things like that, right? Like a quota system. Right, right. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to start hiring today. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. One of the things that is just historically true is that unless you do something structurally to change um, the organization, then it just becomes a kind of motto or it just stays the same. And it might be a blip, but there's not long term, right? So like investing in DEI, it it feels like, yes, it's morally right and – you know, financially or business-minded, right? But it also, it unless you think that there's, well, we th- we think that the sport of soccer should bring something in terms of social capital and cultural capital to the world, right? Like, like what do you do with all the passion and the love that people have for that? Like, you have to be able to harness right. that into something, right? Good, right. <laughs> I mean, and it's it's so often harnessed into perpetuating the status quo or actually retrograde in terms of, you know, sexual orientation, uh, racism. Like this is just, it can be really depressing. But I think that if more people understood DEI, I would hope that they would see it as this like no brainer. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I don't know. I would hope. Yeah, I, I, when you said this structurally, there's a there's like a quote 
whoever it was attributed to is 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 not certain. So if anyone's listening, you can email and say I, I stole this, but I stole this like most things. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's like systems are designed for the results that they get. And again, you know, I'm uh, arguably. It's summertime and I've been outside a lot, but I'm arguably a white passing individual and definitely in certain spaces, right? In a courtroom with a suit on and, you know, not having seen the sun in nine months. And I guess I'm saying that because I I feel like I do have some perspective here. A lot of white people think that things are the way they are because they naturally are that way. And there's nothing further from the truth, right? Like we are where we're at today because of specific choices and policies, whether explicitly or implicitly, were designed to, you know, stratify the population, you know, within the context of colonialism and, and, and slavery and all these things, right? So, like, why you see whatever the percentages are of Fortune 500 companies with white men leading them, that's not because they're all the best. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. I mean, the idea that there's fairness I mean, here you are as like a VP of equity, right? I mean, that's like an impossible job. You will never create that, but you are working towards it, right? You are trying to adjust and to to get closer. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, you know, again, like, what do I do? A lot of it is either very directly or circuitously, like influencing people into why structures are important or just letting them recognize that the world is not this way because everyone that looks like you is the best. So just like starting there. And, you know, we talk a lot about like meeting people where they're at in this kind of work, right? And then like education and things like that. But, you know, I go back and forth between, you know, accepting that and then challenging that a lot because I do work with a lot of like highly accredited people who should know better, right? So it's it's one of those things that like you would say in like a deposition, like, are you lying to me? Or are you just stupid? You tell me, right? Either answer is very bad. <laughs> but and I don't use that. I mean, I'm using that in the podcast, of course. But like, I don't use that often to their face. Yeah, in people's right. faces at meetings. But like, a lot of times, I'm thinking that I'm like, this is crazy. Like, how you know? Like, um, of course, we have to have intentional policies and procedures to ensure, or at least like aspirationally, get to equity, right? Absolutely. And that starts in hiring right? And where you're sourcing your people and how you're writing your job descriptions and how inclusive is the language. And again, you know, I do a lot of like anti-Black racism, you know, equity work. But like when I'm talking about this as a VP of equity, I'm talking about everyone, underrepresented groups, right? So if you're an underrepresented group, which typically is someone who's not male and not white and are not educated or not wealthy, right? Or from a privileged background. These policies are designed to be inclusive and welcoming and, you know, gather up at least the opportunity for people who may not otherwise have had them to be seen, whether it's in a, you know, a position to be hired or or what have you. Right. Most people are underrepresented in structures of power. Most people, the vast majority of people is who you're describing. Right. You know, the idea by using the term minority, people's vision, you know, is created through words like that. And they have this image that like, oh, you're just privileging this very small group of people. And it's like, no, 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 no. The very small group of people have been privileged. And it's all those other people that you're talking about that that belong. I would love to know like the... The etymology of, of the, that phrasing, maybe I should know that already, but like, 
to to say that the majority is the majority is such a like you know Orwellian thing, right? I mean, the global majority is not white. Like sometimes I try to I use that, and people are like, "What are you talking about?" Um, and there's all those like studies and, and things like if you put a picture of, you know, 10 by 10 of, of faces and you put a spattering of black faces in there and, you know, white and black people will overrepresent the number of those peoples. Right. So people like so people, you know, we live in Chicago and, you know, I've asked people just anecdotally in different times in my lives, like how many black people do you think live in Chicago? Like what's the percentage? They're like 60, 70 percent, you know, or like, well, what do you think nationally? I don't know, 50 percent. I'm like, geez, Louise, people, <laughs> it's like 12, 13 percent nationally. And it's like 30, 31 percent in Cook County, you know. So, yeah, I don't know. I, sorry. It's like a side. I don't think but I don't think I mean, to go part of the problem, I think, is that when you use terms like structure or systemic or things like that, people's brains turn off like they start to think like that's math or something. And it's like, no, no, it's not. Like, this isn't hard, you know? (laughs) This is like, you know, like when you start to talk about an org chart and where DEI fits within sports in a particular org chart and why that matters, that is something really easy to grasp. And yet, as soon as you use structure, system, organization, it's like people are like, ah, you know, I just love my football. And so... (laughs) One of the things like that I hate the most is when people go to Twitter and say, we live in a broken system. And you say, no, 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 no. This no. is working exactly how it was designed to work. Correct. Which is, to, you know, MLS ha- had been hitherto, right, designed in a particular way to model itself after other leagues in the United States because it is not modeled off of a European or a South American type of soccer club. No, not at all. Right? So you're really like pushing against the kind of weight of history where it's already been designed like this. And so when you're describing that, I just appreciate how difficult it is to go against that tide. It is. It's a a Herculean task. Um, And that's why if teams don't have this position that is Mm -hmm. independently, you know, paid and staffed Mm -hmm. with its own space within the org chart, you know that they're likely being performative, Right. A lot of like HR people are doing this or just the black or brown or woman employee who's doing it extra on the side because they love it so much. Right. 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 So, you know, again, they love unpaid labor. Right. Yeah. It's, it's so profitable. But uh, <laughs> but where are I supposed to make the margins, Brenda? Come on. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the um, the fire again, and kudos to them and, and our president, Ishwar yes. Glassman Shreen. Yeah. Uh, and our SVP, Paul Cadwell, you know, for recognizing the need and like making the space, right? Mm-hmm. Making the space and more importantly, paying for it. Yeah. That's number one, right? Like, I feel like that's a really easy differentiator between like, is the club you're supporting performative in their DEI efforts yeah. or are they attempting to be substantive? Well, do they yeah. even pay somebody to do this? Okay. It's a good barometer. Yeah. But then talking about like the complexity of the of the problem And that's why I say it takes more than just me. Like right now I'm just staff of one person, which is, you know, it's, it's, um, I won't get any trouble saying that it's inadequate, right? I need more people, but thankfully there are people within the organization that feel that this is very important and and are willing to do that extra emotional labor and physical labor, right? So, you know, we have people who, you know, the player care staff for our academy, right? 
you know, participating in Major League Soccer's culture coaching program, which is a new program that uh, Tony Sana and Sana Foundation have put on through Major League Soccer, and then incorporating DEI, not as like the fifth element of their curriculum, but incorporating aspects of DEI into each curriculum uh, topic that they're doing. For the coaches, it's more direct, you know, training saying like, hey, don't assume ever all your players are heterosexual, right? Like, try to uh, disincentivize or dissuade like hyper masculine sexual conversations in the locker room, right? And make space for LGBTQ plus athletes. And if you don't do that, then that is part of your performance review and you, you know, may not have a job here. You may be put on a performance plan, right? And then going to the, you know, working with HR to uh, do trainings, like, you you know, implicit bias and pronoun trainings for the employees, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, we're bringing in a consultant, uh, Chris Gibbons, uh, next week to um, work with the executive team on the importance of inclusive leadership and and DEI and these things. So yes, it's complicated, but it's not so complicated where, you know, we should feel apathy, right? Or hopelessness. Oh, totally. Yeah. No, no, you never, you never feel that. Well, no, I know you, I know you don't think that, but I think that's that's such an easy out for people, right? This is way too complicated. It's going to be too expensive. Right. It's going to take too much time. Yeah. So I like to say, actually, totally solvable. We can do it quickly if you want to, right? If you want to. <laughs> if you want to, it can be done quickly. Um, you know, like I'll just give an example again, like under the idea of like what it is that, th- that I do, right? And, you know, it's funny because I even get that question from people I work with in the organization. Like, what are you doing all day? And <laughs> and it's not a question of you personally. It's more like for people, because DEI has become such a hot button sort of like critical race theory, it's it's become shrouded in this in this conversation. It's like so easy when, and helpful, I think, for people to just hear you and hear like what concrete things you're talking about that so that they aren't in this fantasy land of, right. you know, theory. Yeah. And like like a super concrete thing, you know, in in the northern suburbs of Chicago a few weeks ago, there was the Highland Park shooting. Right. And it was awful. And this like, you know, highly affluent neighborhood suffered this awful trauma and children were killed and left orphaned. And it was ridiculously awful. And in my position, I'm, I'm part of like the crisis communication team, right? Uh, and this would be another whole nother topic and, you know, about like how involved should your sports club be in, in, in messaging? But, you know, this is something that people want, expected a message from and, and, we, and mm-hmm. they wanted to do things. And, you know, we have people, you know, in various roles who felt very passionate, impassioned about doing all sorts of stuff, very public and, and what have you. And like, again, like a very simple thing that I do is in that conversation that we had saying, hey, totally agree with everything here. We really should do things and help and whatnot and and message. However, before we do that, I just want to remind everybody that more people were killed in the city of Chicago that very weekend. And the there was a kid of a similar age orphaned and you know left maimed and all these awful things and we neglected to do anything about that remember so when you're talking about equity and fairness and just consistency of messaging let's not by our actions you know indicate to the city and our fans that we think some people are more important than others yeah right yeah that's a conversation that you know, you have to have a group of individuals who, you know, trust each other enough and who are open enough to have like difficult conversations. You know, same thing with like, uh, you know, the invasion of Ukraine, right? 
the league very much allowing and people wanting to, you know, speak to that, right? And how far are clubs going to go? Because people had very, very strong opinions. And again, same mm-hmm. thing. I don't mm-hmm. say playing devil's advocate because I don't like that. I didn't play devil's advocate when I was an attorney. I'm just talking about another side of the of an issue, mm-hmm. right? Not, not a bad mm-hmm. side, just another side that's equally as important to somebody, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, MLS does have, you know, fan rules about political messaging in stadia and things like that, that, you know, may or may not be enforced. And again, you know, I just come up with a hypothetical. Like if we're going to drape, you know, the Ukrainian flag all over a stadium, like be prepared to be equally welcoming um, to Palestinian flags in stadium. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people, you know, decision makers may not be comfortable with that. And if they're not, then they need to be equal in their treatment of those things and maybe not allow any of them or maybe allow all of them. Well, or, or I think here, like Black Lives Matter is like an excellent example of something that was frequently called political, that a, political in the U.S. context makes people think of partisanship. And I think they have a really difficult time people have a a tough time separating those issues. Black Lives Matter is a human rights movement. You know what I mean? Like, and, and yeah, no, no. So that, that gets you into a a place. But I think if you always go to, I I think like issues of racial equality in the U S you're going to find your compass in terms of what you do with the rest. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's, that's such a astute point. Right. Um, Cause you know, one of the things that we try to do is frame things in humanitarian lens, right? Like, you know, abortion rights is a humanitarian issue. Like, you know, personal autonomy, right? Safety from being a refugee or whether from war yeah, or climate, exactly. right? And it, of course, intersects with racial yeah. equity all the time. So you don't, we don't even need to usually like make the choices that the devil's advocate people want right. you to make. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you on that. And, and this was a, this was, this podcast was worth it for many reasons, but just having that articulated help. Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but then on a, you know, I'm really, really proud of our recent language accessibility work. Yes. Talk about that. Can you explain a little bit? I know that I've taken up a lot of your time, but if you could just at least talk just a bit about that. Yeah, no, I, I would love to. So Major League Soccer has a a very high proportion of Latinx fans and Spanish-speaking fans, regardless of where they're, however you want to categorize them, right? Um, And that's known. Everybody knows that. And every, anyway, what we did was, you know, we have the, we have an idea council, which runs meetings for the employees. And it's a, it's a, it's a safe space where employees come to talk about their own things or worldly things or organizational things, Right. And there's no managers there. It's just the the employee level people. And, you know, one of the things that came up was, you know, the lack of language accessibility on our website, which made me go back to my desk afterwards and do that thing that people are saying, what are you doing all day? Is I just went on all 29 websites and looked to see if they had Spanish language tabs, right? Of the 29 teams, about a third of them had Spanish language tabs, Meaning you could go up to the navigation bar, hit Espanol or Spanish, and it would convert the website into the into Spanish. Most of those conversions are like adulterated versions of the of the English site. 
So, you know, maybe a third or a fifth of the content is there in Spanish, right? Maybe just, you know, like the press release or what have you. Um, But if anything you clicked on would take you back to an English language site. So the thing that I, again, from an organizational perspective was, was looking at was ticket purchasing ability. So if you go to tickets, which says tickets on the Spanish site and click it, it will take you to the English site that allows you to purchase tickets. You know, and, and I asked a few yeah. people about why that was, and I got very similar answers being that, well, you know, people who are able to get to the page have the wherewithal to get through it in English, which is, seems like a, I guess, an acceptable answer, but strangely unacceptable to me just from like an equity standpoint. And then also just like from a business standpoint, like if you're trying to sell somebody, if you're trying to like take money from someone, shouldn't you make them as comfortable? Like, isn't that what marketing is about? Like and as comfortable and influent. And excited. Excited. And engaged, right. And engaged. And ready like to, to, yes. Yeah. yeah. Facilitate this purchase. Right. Mm-hmm. So of the third of the teams that had some sort of Spanish, only two had the ability from beginning to end to purchase tickets in Spanish. And I believe that was Charlotte and Miami. Honestly, it's every market is going to have a pretty, you know, significant New York, L.A. Right. L.A., they didn't have those things, right? Texas. Right. Texas, Dallas, Austin, Houston, they don't have it, which is absurd, right? So we talked about this and I, you know, being a a, a recovering attorney, I wrote a memo about it and I I shared it with uh, our SVP of marketing And, you know, and she was like, yeah, I totally agree. And then she let me in on some of the things that they were doing. And the fire does a decent job. You know what I mean? Like we we do a a pretty good job. But um, so, you know, talking with the SBT of marketing, having these idea council meetings, and then sharing that memo with the, with the, the employees who, who, who thought it was important on their own without, you know, management oversight, employees came together, worked across departments and made our website on the ticketing aspect functional in Spanish from beginning to end. Now, we don't have a 100% you know, translated website, every piece of content, but we are the third team in MLS to have the ability to purchase tickets in Spanish, which I'm very proud of, and our website content is growing in Spanish. Um, and now we're looking mm-hmm. at ways of you know, enshrining that change into a sustainable change, which means staffing it and, re- and putting resources towards it, right? So that's like a huge, huge win for, for us. It's great for our uh, fans who are largely uh, Spanish speaking. And um, you know, I'm excited to see in the next, you know, at the, by the end of the year to you know, do the analysis and see if, how much more engagement we had and, you know, and things like that, right? Um, and again, I would like to, I would argue that we will have large, we will have more engagement, which would be more ticket prices, regardless of how good or bad the team is. Right, right. You know? Right. Um, and then another thing that was really, really interesting when I was reviewing the websites, Montreal has an amazing website in French, mm-hmm. which makes sense. Yeah. They also have a tab for English. And when you st- click their English tab, it is 100% comprehensively in English, yeah, which I found to be really, really enlightening because they know, you know, and I'll be tough on us English speakers. I don't speak any of the languages, um, unfortunately. Uh, it's all my own fault. But uh, English speakers are, are, they're communicating how important they are by saying, you know what, we're giving you equal access to our content mm-hmm. in English. And, you know, that uh, difference with the English speaking teams not doing the same for Spanish speaking people 
was telling to me. Yeah. And I didn't want to be part of that, right? Yeah. And I mean, the, the question is not if they can read English, right? Or if Correct. you can read, but rather you want to excite people. You also, a lot of times people like to keep up and use football and soccer as a way to like maintain community. And the idea yeah. that the Mexican American community um, has enjoyed speaking Spanish. A lot of times there's an assumption that, well, if they can speak English, why on earth would they speak Spanish? And it's like, you know, it's a nice language to do. (laughs) Some people just voluntarily want to speak in that language. Um, It's not just a functional uh, question. So it's great. And it sounds like you did it quickly and cheaply. And so like, why not? Right. Why not? And why not? And I, I would I would imagine because we do uh, like DEI collective calls in the league level. And I've, I don't believe in like gatekeeping and ownership and things. So very much shared this little win with everyone. And I would I would imagine you'll see around the league, you know, again, to those teams that are substantively uh, interested in in. DEI initiatives, you'll see changes. Because again, it's not that hard, right? Yeah. But I also wanted to say about the, the fact that like people who speak a language like to, they enjoy speaking the language. Again, I don't have that ability. Um, I haven't learned that. But I was talking to a, a colleague and a friend who is born from a native speaking family who then didn't really transfer the language. And then he lost the language. Mm-hmm. And he didn't like lose it, but like, he doesn't sound like a native speaker any longer. Yeah. And there was like a, it was a really personal story. And I was really happy that he shared it with me because it gave me a perspective I had never had before, right? Like in what you just said, like having spaces where you would use your Spanish routinely. It's exciting. It's exciting. I take my yeah. children to like schools around Latin America and shove them into like yeah. <laughs> right. Spanish school and they hate it. But I mean, you know, it's a great opportunity for me. Like, you yeah. know, I have Fubo on in Spanish all day long and they may not love it, but it's a, it is, it's an opportunity. It's a good ecosphere. Yeah. And again, like what I think about in DEI work, cause I, you know, being, you know, mixed, I, f- I feel like I've been on both sides of this. Like I have felt very much included in things, energized by things being made for me. And I've also felt very excluded in times in my life where things were like readily known not to be made for me. And that first feeling is a zillion times better than that second feeling. And not to be cheesy about it, but like, I want to be able to spread that feeling to people. Like every, when they talk about like inclusion at work and performance and things like that, like if you have that feeling, you're going to be better doing whatever it is that you're doing, whether you're the administrative assistant or you're the performance coach or the player or the marketing person or the ticket seller. Right. Um, So yeah. So like just feeling, it's just, it feels good to be accepted and, uh, understood and wanted and engaged with. Yes. These are, again, this is very human, right? This is just like a very human thing. It's very basic. But I do think it's important, and I just, I want to wrap up by thanking yeah. you once again I and just reiterating that I think if more organizations had solid footing in terms of what an equity executive can bring, what a DEI strategy can bring, um, there would be much more openness and priority placed on it, or at least that's my most hopeful version. 
of myself <laughs> I'm thinking <laughs> is that I, I hope, I think it, it, it will beget other positions. I think, I hope your position will beget other positions, both within the fire, but also more broadly in NWSL and MLS um, because of what we know to be a system that has not had great representation. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And, and, and there's a big selfish aspect to this too. You know, like I want job security because if I had to go back to being a divorce lawyer, I, I, I don't know if I could manage that. So uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm, motiva- I'm motivated to make this work. <laughs> well, I'm glad that for so many reasons you've taken this position and um, we wish you the best of luck on Burn It All Down. Thank you so much, Evan Whitfield, for being with us. Thank you so much, Brenda. So that's it for this episode of Burn It All Down. This episode was produced by Tressa Verstig. Shelby Weldon is our web and social media wizard. Burn It All Down is part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. You can follow Burn It All Down on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen, subscribe, and read the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and TuneIn. For show links and transcripts, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You'll also find links to our merch at our bonfire store. And thank you to our patrons. Your support means the world. If you want to become a sustaining donor to our show, visit patreon.com slash burn it all down. I'm Brenda Elsie. And on behalf of all of my wonderful co-hosts, burn on and not out.